I'm delighted to welcome to Truth and Rhythm, flutist, multi-instrumentalist, singer, composer, arranger, and producer, David Pick Conley, best known as an original member of one of the 1980s most successful R&B acts, Surface. From 1986 to 1990, the trio landed three albums in the R&B Top 20 and scored nine consecutive Top 10 R&B hits. Those songs were Happy, Lately, I Missed, Closer Than Friends, Shower Me With Your Love, You Are My Everything, can we spend some time all i want and the first time which went to number one on the r&b as well as pop and adult contemporary charts Were that not enough he has also worked with stars like mandrel sister sledge new edition gwen guthrie isaac hayes reby jackson the jets jermaine jackson melba moore stanley jordan and aretha franklin david thank you so much for joining the show how are you man it seems like you did your homework scott (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I do what I can. I'm doing know. great. I'm really doing great. How's everything? Oh, things are good. Thank you for joining the show. Much appreciated. No question about it. No question. Pleasure's mine. Where are you today, David? I am in my studio right now, and that's Smyrna, uh, uh, Smyrna, Smyrna, Georgia. I've been here for about maybe about two and a half years. All right. Uh, originally mm-hmm. from Newark, though, I understand. Oh, so. yeah. I'm a Jersey boy, so sure enough, Jersey boy all the way. Uh-huh. Uh, let's start back then uh, and get an idea, David, of, you know, uh, how you came into music. And I know, I think your brother is also musical. Did you have other musical oh, yeah. family members? Yeah. Tell us a little bit I about had a that. Sister. I, I had a sister that sang, she passed away, um, but she could sing. I wasn't too aware of her singing at the time because she was actually the musician of the family, not me. I came into music after high school. And it was sort of like, you know, coincidental, I guess you might say. But you know, it was, I always felt like God sent me that flute. And when I got it, it was like I could play it right away. You know, so by that happening, you know, it wasn't just me doing it, you know. And I was like 19 years old when I started playing flute. And then it, it later on, it led on to all different instruments as, as well. Did you have any formal training? No formal training at all. I taught myself. Wow, so you have a keen ear. I didn't know what I had, to tell you the truth, because I just thought the flute looked real pretty, and I was able to sell it for more money than I bought it for. But when I got it into my basement in Jersey, in East Orange, it just looked so nice. I just decided to put it together, and I decided to just let my hands fall on it, and it fell completely in the right spot. And I knew that you blow it like you blow into a bottle, and I just started playing it. And I started playing it right away, playing little things like Mary Had a Little Lamb, little ditties. And out of nowhere, I just knew how to do it. I don't even know why or how. That's just the way it was. 
Wow. Who are some of your uh, musical heroes and influences back then? Well, back then, because I was playing the flute, um, I ran, it was from Mandrill, Carlos Wilson. I, I ran it. That was one of the first songs that I guess I learned all the way. And there was another flute player in the neighborhood that I, that I saw it out. Actually, when I started playing the flute, I found him. I said, yo, I want to learn how to play this song. And so he took me and uh, taught me how to play it and taught me how to learn songs on the record player. You know, we had records back then. We didn't have like, you know, CDs. And, and so Carlos Wilson was one of the first flute players that I actually learned from. And it eventually branched into people like Hubert Laws, who was one of my favorite. James Galway, who was also another one of my favorite, and Jean-Pierre Rompol. And I, I had a little bit of history with Herbie Mann, but he was like one of my top, but he was real funky, and I did like him. Yeah, I was going to say. that's on the musician. Oh, go, go on. Oh, I was going to say, for me, it was Herbie Mann and, uh, and Hubert Herbie Laws, Mann for was sure. A, and Hubert yeah, Laws. Yeah, Herbie Mann. He was, he was really nice. And then later on, I actually did a record with Hubert Laws and Nelson Rangel, who was another absolutely fine flute player. I didn't put him on the tops, but... As far as he's concerned, he's one of the top flute players in the world. So I'll just leave it there. <laughs> but anyway, now those are the those are the uh, musical giants, right? But I also had my favorite singers. My favorite singer, pretty much of all times, was Marvin Gaye. And later on, I got a chance to meet him as well, you know, and 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 work with his producer, who was Ed Townsend, who was David Townsend from Surface, his dad. So we had a lot of nice people around us that was able to teach me more things along the way. Do you remember the first concert that you went to? Yeah, I do. Either it was Mandrill or it was Santana, one or the other. I, I don't know which one actually came first, but they were both around the same time. And both artists I was very, very fond of. Just, and at the time, I think Abraxas, that album was out. I pretty much, in my head, I almost knew every single note in my head on that Abraxas album. As well as even on the Mandrill album, it was Mandrill Is. And Kohalo was a song that I had learned, you know. So it, it's, it was quite a venture after that. At what point did you know or decide that music would be your career path? Actually, I thought... I just started to get to know music when I started learning how to play because what I did, basically, I almost pretty much dropped a lot of my friends that I kicked around with because, you know, I was into some, you know, kind of scary little things, you know, like just doing bad things to, to people, I guess, you know, and I was going down the wrong path, but the music sent me to a path where I started to know musicians and musicians were really nice people. And, um, I started getting new, new friends. And through that, I started learning that, you know, music was something that I just wanted to do, whether I was making money or not. I just really enjoyed it. But later on, I found out that there, because I really didn't know he was going to be able to make money off of, off of music. I didn't really think I could. But later on, I did find out that from Happy, when we did Happy, I got a call from a young lady at, uh, at ASCAP office, which is the, uh, the American Association for Composers and, and Publishers. She called me up and said, are you one of the writers of this song, Happy? I said, yeah. She says, well, I'll tell you what. Somebody's got to do this paperwork because there's some money sitting up in here for you. I'm like, money? Really? And I didn't know anything about making money off of uh, writing songs. 
I did because we were songwriters. We were we were actually songwriters. Uh, our, our publishing deal, yes, but not after we write a song, we can make money off of the airplay. So, okay, here it is. So she, she said, I'll fill out the paper for you, and then I'll send you the check. And so I said, okay. I says, uh, how much is in the check? And she said, well, I got a check here. I think it was, um, I think it was like $30,000. I'm like, $30,000? I'm like, what? I calls up David Bernard. I'm like, yo, man, you ain't gonna believe this, man. This lady called me up and she said, well, she got $30,000 of ours. And she said that there was more coming up. I'm like, what? <laughs> so I knew then that, you know, we could really make some money off of this music then, but I didn't really know it before that. I mean, we were making $150 a week as writers, but that was like really no money. You know what I mean? But all of a sudden, Surface started to hit some big numbers and it was a big deal to, for us back then. And we're talking, uh, this is like uh, 83, no, 86. We're talking 86, 87, back in then. So it was it was a nice feeling. I bet. Um, yeah. I like to get phone calls like that, too. Um, <laughs> it was a great phone call. Yeah. What? Uh, how, how did you get the Mandrill gig? Um, well, when we were like a local band, Dave Townsend and I, we were in like a local band in Jersey. And then we took it up to uh, Los Angeles. And we got a deal with his dad that flopped. You know, it didn't really do anything. We never really did a record. We did some records, but it really never came out. So I was at the house with uh, my friend Mac. And one of the bass players, well, the bass player of our band comes by and he says, man, you ain't gonna believe who I just saw. I'm like, who do you see? He said, man, I just saw Mandrew up in the studio, up in uh, Studio City. I'm like, what? I said, man, you got to take me up there. He said, man, I'm too tired. Man. I don't want to go all the way up there. I mean, I, I literally was, I was like ready to kill him if he didn't take me. So he finally decided to take me. And when I got up in there, I just walked in the studio. I knew all the guys because I, I followed them. I knew everybody in the group. I knew all, because we used to read all the credits on the back of the album. So I knew it, knew it. I knew all their songs. And, you know, when I got up in there and I saw Carlos, I said, Carlos, man, I'm going to tell you something, man. He said, I've been following you. You're almost like my daddy on the flute. He said, so you can play the flute. And I said, yeah, man. He said, play me something. So I pulled my flute out and I played Kohalo. And when I played it, I played it note for note exactly the way he played it, right? And he looked at me and says, play it again. And this time I played it this time. I played it like I saw it. I recorded them at Randall's Island in New York. And I recorded that performance. And he hit another note above the uh, the C, which is a D. And I played it and hit that note. And he looked at me and said, oh, snap. Who knows that? Because it's kind of like an esoteric note. So I went on and played it like that. And then they told me that they were looking for a sax player. And I said, well, I can play sax too. He said, yeah, yeah, so, but I played alto and Barry at the time. So, but anyway, they didn't know that. So they just said, come on back tomorrow for the audition. So I came up to the audition, try to make it quick. And when I got up there for the audition, I pretty much almost was showing them each note because we started out Spence Walker, we all, dan, 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 you know, and um, I said, no, 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 you, uh, Lou, you got to play this note. Carlos, you play this note and, uh, and then I'll play this note, right? So. We did it again, and we hit the, the chord, and it was right. And they was, like, having fun with me, you know what I mean? And I played a little congas, so I, I jammed with them on congas, you know, percussion. And everything was good. So they, they liked me. 
So I left and I waited for a phone call and they called me back. They said, well, you know what? We all like you, but, you know, we, we really need a tenor player. And you play alto. I'm like, okay. So I decided to go to pawn shops and I found a little tenor sax for, for 60 bucks. And I picked it up and I sat there and I transposed all the songs from being from alto because it's a different key to the tenor. And I went back up there and I said, hey, I got your tenor. And so we went up there and they're looking at me like, oh, man, where this guy? He's still, he's still around, right? So I went and played all the songs in a, in a new key. And so they pretty much was convinced with me. But then there was another thing that got in the way because they said, well, maybe we don't want the tenor player because a violinist came in and they wanted to have the violin instead of the tenor. And I pretty much told them, I said, man, you can't hire no violin player over me. I'm the one that's supposed to be in this group. I'm almost telling them. So they put me in the group and they said, listen, I want you to be at such and such place at such and such time. We're going down to San Diego and we're going to do our first performance in San Diego. So that's really was my introduction to the group of Mantra. <laughs> wow. See, persistence pays off, right? <laughs> I was so persistent. I was not going to let that go. I said, no, no, I'm in this group. Y'all don't know. I, I was born how, to be in this group. How old were you then? Oh, I was, I was in my twenties. I might've been. 25, 26, or something like that. I, I don't really know. I mean, I can figure it out, but I was in my 20s. And you appeared on Soul Train with them, right? I appeared on Soul Train. That was a really, really big deal for me. That was in 1977. I appeared on Soul Train with them. And and not only that, they announced my name, and they, they point the camera at me the whole night. So it was like a really, really big deal. So that pretty much sealed me in the group. You know, and we did a nice little tour and TV shows and all kinds of stuff. We, we even went to South America as well. You know, we did a little uh, sort of maybe a two-week tour in South America. So it was a lot of fun. You know, wow. I got to know new things about the music business through them as well. And Nefty's been on the show. And I, Nefty, saw, yeah. I saw you listed for that uh, side project he did way back then that wasn't released until a couple of years ago, was under his name. And, yeah, uh, I didn't know it was released. You're telling me something new. Yeah, it's out there now. It, it, do, do you know the name of it? It's just Nefty or Neftali? Um, it's under his name, Neftali Santiago. And okay. um, uh, it's got a bionic funk on there, I think, and some mm -hmm. other tracks. Yeah. So there was a song that my brother was playing bass on. He played bass on one of the songs as well. Yeah. Oh, I'd cool. like to look that up. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Real cool. <laughs> so, uh, wow, on Soul Train so early on. And then um, you had some kind of connection with Steve Washington or you? Uh, oh, man, Steve, he was like, we, we're, we're like childhood friends, basically, even though I was a couple of years older than him. But he was the one that was doing all the deals back then. Steve Arrington, Aura, and of course Slade, the big one. And he would invite me into the studio. I didn't play flute. Uh, did I play flute on any of the records? I was mostly playing percussion, actually. Uh, so he invited me there. And that's actually how I got my first deal, through Steve Washington. I was in the studio with him. We were doing some music on a Slave album. Ken Carey was there. Who is uh, who was, I guess, the head of South Soul Records. And I was having a conversation with Starlena Young, who was a, uh, one of the uh, female singers in the group. And I told her, I said, I got a really nice song that me and Dave Townsend just wrote. And, and Ken was listening. He was over there listening. 
And he said, so you got a good song, huh? I, I said, I think I do. He said, let me hear it. So he said, we went into Studio B. I pulled out the cassette, played Falling in Love for him. And he says, wow, you know what? I think you do got a good song. If you do it as a record, I'll put it out. So that's that was my first introduction to having my own first record deal was, was through Steve Washington, being in the right place at the right time. Are you still? And that was kept, surface. Have you kept in touch with him at all? Or? Oh yeah, yeah. He's been uh, uh, he's been going through some illnesses. Yeah, and you know, praying for him and just sending my nephew. My nephew's been pretty much taking care of him, doing some things, anything he needs. My nephew's been around for him, you know, because he's still up in Jersey and I'm down here in, in uh, Georgia. So yeah, I, I definitely still stay in touch with Steve. Yeah, that's good to hear. Yeah, I know he's had some uh, health issues, so that's good to hear. Yeah, but he's still a beautiful cat, man. I just love that brother right there. Oh, and just his, uh, the breadth of what he did back then. I mean, I don't think mm. he got over as big as he should have because, I mean, he has fingers yeah. on so many things. And I thought that Even he with was George Clinton, of, too. Yeah, I thought he was one of yeah. the best guys at making music that was accessible but still had right. some of that funk, you know? Oh, yeah. He was definitely the funk man back then. Well, he was the one. He was the act, and we're both kind of short, you know, not kind of short. We're both very short. <laughs> and we both had dreadlocks, you know, we, we're kind of like almost like brothers in a sense. People look at him, they look at me, you know what I mean? So you can't get away from that, you know? So, but he was into the funk for real. He was definitely one of the, one of the, one of the starters of it all in our, in our area, you know? And we had a lot. We had school in the gang. We had uh, so many groups. It's, it's hard to name them all. Were you on any of Aura's uh, better-known songs, um, like Are You Single or anything um, like that? I, I don't know if I was on Are You Single. Uh, I just don't remember. Mm. You know, I know I was definitely, you know, on Aura's album which, with, uh, with Star. Well, we, we called it Star and Kurt. And it was still a, a new thing for me. All that was so new. And I, I wasn't clocking credits and clocking being a studio musician. I was Steve's boy. You know what I mean? We were cool. And, you know, and he was cool by letting me in, in on the sessions. You know what I mean? So it was like that. He even did Steve Arrington in, in a, a, a record even before Steve Arrington really jumped off. You know, I'm not sure if I was on that single. Matter of fact, I know I wasn't. I was really surprised that he had so many deals that was popping off. So I watched him to learn how to do stuff like that, you know, so he was like really like my mentor without even knowing it. He didn't even know that he was meaning so much to me. He kind of knows now, you know, because my nephew's been telling him he's like surprised, but don't be surprised, Steve. You know, you're my dude. Love you. Yeah. I love giving him the props because, you know, he's done so much music that I love and also just been impressed by what he's accomplished. Oh yeah, man. He's the one. Um, we grew up under him. Mm -hmm. So David, how did you how did you get the pick part of your name? Oh, you want to open that can of worms, huh? <laughs> 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 well, you know, my nickname used to be Pickle. And uh my aunt gave it to me when I was born because she said I look like a pickle. And later on I found out that that wasn't the coolest name to have, especially when you was young and talking to girls and all that kind of stuff. And I remember speaking to a young lady and, and she asked me what my name was. And I said, pickle. She said, pickle, you know, it kind of turned her off. So she walked away. And <laughs> so I decided that I need to shorten it. Maybe if I just say pick, you know, so everybody still knows me as who I am, but we'll shorten it. 
And that's how I, that's how I came to pick. And then I just kept it throughout the, the career, David Pick Conley, you know, and it became right. a thing, you know. All right. I hear yeah, it. So that's how it is, yeah. So falling in love um, on Salsa, very much a uh, clubby dance kind of record and female, yeah. lead, female lead vocal. And, and mm -hmm. uh, When Your Ex Wants You Back was kind of similar. Yeah. Um, what happened at Salsol? I think they went under at some point, right? And what happened? I wasn't with them when they went under. I was just really trying to just make it as an artist. In the interim, myself and Karen Copeland, we had our problems, uh, okay? And the problems didn't work itself out, so I just put her on the side, pretty much. Um, when you're new in the business, you really don't know all the business stuff. And sometimes you can think you're bigger than you are because at that time, New York was blasting falling in love. Like it was, you were not going nowhere without hearing falling in love. And we were getting a lot of club dates behind that song and doing all kinds of stuff like that. So later on, we, we did break up, her and I, as a group, because we were never together as a couple. And, um, and then later on, I met uh, Dave, well, Dave's always been in because Dave co-wrote the song with me. And then we met Bernard. So Surface became something a little bit different after that because originally it was Karen Copeland, right? So Salso itself at the time probably was going through some changes because they were like pretty much a club type of label. You know, I think they had Instant Funk. Was that the name of the group? Instant Funk. They had, yes. uh, yep. um, they had Sky. My mind made up. Sky. Yeah, Sky was a big one. And they had Surface. <laughs> So as Surface was in the beginning with me and Karen Copeland, but later on it, it changed to myself, Bernard, and Dave Townsend. So I, I left, and they left, and we went on to other things. Did you leave other tracks at Salsa? Was there an album that never got out? Or? No, there was a, there was another track that I did leave there. Um, um, what was the name of that? Uh, uh, Just a Mirage. Just a Mirage was really a dope song, but he never put it out. So we, oh, oh, Save Your Love For Me. We did leave a couple songs laying around, but he never picked them up as an album. He said he would if we came up with the right songs, but I'll tell you what his, what his comment to me was. When we did Falling In Love, he asked me to put together enough songs and he would give me X amount of dollars to do an album. And so he wanted me to just pretty much show him some songs. And uh, when you, I spoke you back, he did end up putting out, but he said, you know what? I think you guys stumbled. And I said, what you mean? He said, well, you know, the stuff that you handed me really ain't like falling in love. So I think you stumbled. And, and that left a little mark in my brain saying, oh. <laughs> I guess we stumbled, you know what I mean? Maybe we don't know how to write a hit, you know what I mean? So, But later on, we come to find out that uh, people were asking us to write songs for them. And I said, I guess we stumbled. <laughs> so there it is. That's where we left that thing right there, you know. Yeah. So then you guys were honing in on your songwriting craft. Yeah, and uh, mm -hmm. what, what was your process like, you guys, to uh, write those songs before you kicked off Surface? Well, the process was, I had a little studio at the house, you know, and and when Dave start, Dave and Bernard, when they was both coming down, you know, because they were they were both living in Connecticut at the time, and then we later on lived next door to each other. But the process was really, you know, um, I had a little equipment. I had like a, a, eight, a eight oh eight drum machine, a Fender Rose that I borrowed from Kenny Kenny Johnson, but 
pretty much borrowed and it felt like it was mine because we had it there. Uh, a ARP axe, a mini Moog, and a microphone. And of course, Dave's guitar. That was our that was our pretty much our, our arsenal of instruments. So we would sit down, you know, I put a drum drum beat together, whatever, and, and uh, Dave would be playing the piano because he played the guitar later on once once the song was written, but unless he had something uh, from the guitar originally, but he would play the keyboards, I would play the bass and the drums, and, and Bernard would sing. So pretty much, did we all do a little bit of everything? Yeah, but still, that was still the basis of our formula. That was the way we put songs together. We always knew that we had a bass line and some drums. We always knew we had some chords with the piano. And we always knew we had a voice. Prior to having Bernard in town, me and Dave, we were mostly writing music tracks. And we rarely wrote full songs like Falling in Love. But like Ken Carey said, we stumbled. <laughs> and we stumbled on it. So... That was the formula, basically, and then the formula took off into doing other things as, as we went on. But that was basically it. At what point did you decide, you know, hey, we want to do our own thing. Let's revive Surface. And, and how would you get the deal? Well, we didn't decide it because what was happening was I was still looking for a singer for Surface. And we were writing songs for everybody else, I guess, you know, and Dave and Bernard was getting ready to do a group by themselves. It was going to be called Jackson and Townsend. So we were writing songs, and then our publisher, Leonard Richardson, one of the, uh, one of the people at the publishing company, took the songs over to Columbia, and Columbia heard the songs that we were writing, and they said, well, let me tell you something. These, these songs sound more than just songs. We think that this thing sounds like it's a group. Who are these guys? I want to meet them. And so Bernard calls me up and said, yo, we got the deal. I'm like, oh, snap, what? I flew out to California right away. And next thing you know, we're in the office with uh, uh, Eric Nuri, who was like one of the uh, A&R men. And he took us into Larkin Arnold's office, who was the president of Columbia Records at the time. And he said, I really like this music that you guys are writing. He says, so... Uh, what are y'all? Who who are y'all? You know, we didn't even have a name at the time. So we sat down and thought about it. He said, hey, look, we still got Surface. Let's use Surface. So he said, okay, let's just stay with Surface, right? In the meantime, Mark Anano was wondering, since we did the demos ourselves, they was he was asking us questions like, uh, you think y'all can do it again and produce the album yourselves? And we was like, well, we don't know any other way to do it, you know? So uh, he says, okay. I'll, I'll try y'all out. So he gave us a budget. We went to the studio and pretty much we had the, so, uh, the saying saying, do what you did. And he liked what we did. So we decided to do what we did. And that's what we did. We went into the studio, which was uh, at that time, I had uh, did some work with Reby Jackson at the time on her reaction album. And um, so I got a chance to meet Tito Jackson because Tito, that's the studio I was working in. And when it was time for us to do our, our record, he let us do our album in his studio. And that was like a tremendous, tremendous opportunity and, and, and opening a lot of doors just by being with Tito. So uh, the, the uh, transition from being writers into another group, which is just still surface, but uh, another phase of it, that's kind of how it basically worked through the publishing company taking our songs around. 
Wow. So did you have some songwriting influences at the time? I mean, I think of uh, in terms of like surface sound or vibe influences, you know, I think of people like maybe the Isley Brothers. and No question. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because guess what? Um, when the band broke up, the original band I was telling you about with me and Dave Townsend, I went with Mandrill. Guess where David Townsend went? To the Isley Brothers. So he was being influenced directly playing guitar with the Isley Brothers. And then also, remember, we were being produced at that time on the first album by Ed Townsend, right? Ed Townsend's the writer of Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On and many other songs. And he would give us some tips. One of his tips was because we were doing what we thought was good at the time, you know, funky at the time, whatever. But he was like, you know, you guys got to learn how to just maybe put some music together that's going to outlive y'all. We was like, well, what the hell is he talking about? Outlive us? We're trying to get something happening now. You're talking about later on. But he said, yeah, this, uh, this, um, this music that's, that's been around for, for years and years and years. And the reason why it's been around because it bridges all different gaps. So we just put these seeds in our head about music that's going to be living longer than just a quick hit, one hit wonder, boom, 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 you in and out. But we didn't know that how to do it, but we didn't know that we were stumbling on a formula that was going to be able to do it. And the formula was basically do what you did and do what you do, not what everybody else wants you to do. So we didn't know that our style was a little bit different from mainstream, but it was still friendly to mainstream. And it ended up outliving David Townsend. Uh, Happy. Happy made it to the top 100 R&B uh, 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 ballad songs of all times. And he's not even around to enjoy it. So here's a song that Ed Townsend, his father, which had got, he was up there with Let's Get It On as well, actually outlived the song outlived him. Marvin Gaye and Ed that wrote it together. So in a sense, he gave us good advice, although we didn't really filter it as it was not so good. Because you know, a lot of times the older cats, when we listening to them, we listen with one ear and then we still want to do what we wanted to do on our, on our other ear. But look at what happened. Here we got songs that's that's outliving us. And more than likely it's going to outlive me and Bernard, you know. Shower me with your love and happy and who's close to friends, you are my everything. These songs are going to live on. And some of the songs that we wrote for other people, like Let's Be Friends for New Edition. Now you add in another big giant group here with people that are falling under them that are saying, we love this song here. Or even Gwen Guthrie with Ain't Nothing Going On But The Rent. We love this thing going on here. And it's, it, which outlived her. You see? So these little things, these, this advice that was being passed down to us was good advice. I'll say, <laughs> I mean, yeah. uh, I don't know if anybody had more success on the charts during that period than you guys. I mean, I'm thinking maybe Janet Jackson well, was up there and a she few, was but doing not it. many. She beat us out on Shower Me With Your Love. We couldn't get a number one with Shower Me With Your Love because of her. <laughs> <laughs> she handled that. But, uh, you know, at the time, we didn't know that we were residents of the Billboard charts. And so somebody had kind of knocked on our door and said, you, do you know that everything y'all doing is ended up in the charts? And we was like, wow, you know, 
you're right, because the years would go by, and we didn't know that we was always in the charts, whether it was through us or something else that we had did by somebody else. And that was, you know, I don't know if we had more success than anybody else. I don't really know how it, how it relates to that. But, you know, we had some blessings. Just believe it like that. Well, you know, uh, David, I was a DJ during that time, ran a mobile disc company, did countless weddings among all kinds of gigs. And uh, I got to tell you, songs like Shower Me With Your Love, the first time, I mean, those were wedding staples. Right. <laughs> you ain't lying about that. that was, it was good to be stapled with something like that, like weddings, you know what I mean? We yeah. actually become as like a wedding group, you know? That was really cool. They're making memories forever, and they're preserved yeah. on their video forever, and, yeah. you know? Right, you know. right, putting stamps all over the place. You know, sometimes you don't even recognize some. You just, like, roll and don't even know that these are some of the uh, the shadow imprints that you're leaving on people, you know? But it's it's nice to uh, to come back to those thoughts and say, hey, you know, we, we, did, we did a little something, you know? And I think, you know, some people maybe who didn't know uh, thought that you guys were just singers and not so much also the musicians, you know? That's, to me... What made it so impressive is how kind of mostly self-contained you guys were. Well, we were self-contained mainly because we had a great singer. Because you know what? A lot of the daggone near 80% of all the singing was done by Bernard. And we were the musicians that people thought we were, right? Or, or maybe they didn't think until they found out, I guess. But, you know, me and me and Dave... We didn't have a whole lot of light behind the microphone, but we we had, you know, we was on the number one record with uh, you and my everything. But at the same time, we weren't the singers, like the singing group. You know, we were self-contained group. I'm going to leave it there. <laughs> did, we did had you, Bernard. Oh, yeah. Tremendous vocalist. And uh, yeah. when I heard that, you know, you were initially thinking of, you know, just going with another female and ended up with him. That's right, like, right. Uh, a pretty uh, happy uh, result to, uh, you know. Yeah. What a resolve, right? Yeah. Wonderful. Did you guys tour at all on the first record? We toured on the first record as well as the second record, you know. And uh, we, the first tour that we did was quite a big tour. It was like an experience. We did 10 months on the road. And what an experience that was to actually see the people face-to-face, and they finally get to see us, you know, and they finally they, they grab us and hugs and kisses, you know, and Southern Records, you know. It was just an experience that we never thought we could have been, you know, been able to do, right? And here we are on a, on a tour bus, the whole thing, going overseas. We went to Japan. We went to let's see, different places like Bermuda, uh, which was surface. We, uh, let's see. Um, mostly it was Japan. Hawaii, we went, you know, uh, places like that, you know. We didn't go to Europe, which was strange. We didn't go to Europe. I went to Europe later on, you know, also with Surface as well, but but not at that time. But yeah, we definitely did source, yeah. What was the stage act like? Oh, we had a dope band, I could tell you that. We had um, we had one, two, we had two keyboards, two guitars including. Uh, Dave, we had a bass player, and um, one of the keyboard players. She, everybody in the band sang. First of all, we had great singers, and they all sang. And then we had me, Dave, and Bernard in the front. So that was kind of like the, ba- the the band setup, you know, the backstage. And we we had a, a great um, choreographer who was able to work with two left feet 
on me and and, and Dave. <laughs> and Bernard, he was really the dancer. So we had extra little things going on with him. So he was like, you know, the, the, the guy that did all the dance. And we took one of the guys from the back who was a really good dancer, Robbie. And and he would he was real fancy. He could dance like dance his tail off. So he would do a lot of the fancy dancing and stuff like that. So we had a full we had a full unit going on out there. You know, we had all singers. We had we had musicians that were really, really nice and did the music just like the record when we wanted it to and stretch it out when we wanted it to do other things. So it was quite an interesting show. So but but the biggest thing with us is when you came to see us, you really came to, to hear the records. You was not going to get slighted. You was going to hear that record that you loved and a little extra on top. But our whole thing was, let's give them what we did. Once again, do what you did. And with our songs having such a stamp on people, we felt like they really wanted to hear those songs the way they heard them on the radio. So that was our, that was our touch. That's, what we, that's we, what we did on purpose. That was our touch. What instrument did you mostly play while on stage? Uh, I played a little bit of keyboards, but my main instrument was flute and percussion. So in the beginning, I was doing a lot of percussion work and a lot of the flute work. And, and uh, with the synthesizer work, it wasn't like I was doing the bass because we had a great bass player here. you know. So pretty much he did all my parts on the bass. And I think at the time, I was really settling down to the flute. You know, I mean, I, I, flute is my main instrument anyway, but I still wanted to settle into something that just was like me. And that was me. And even some of the uh, keyboard stuff that I was doing, it was mostly samples and stuff like that. Some of the samples, I was sampling a lot of different horns and stuff that we had on the music. I was sampling and just playing by, with the keys and things like that. Because we had the little portable keyboard players that we could kind of wear like a, t like a, uh, like a guitar. So we did that for the show, you know, because that's part of the show, you know, but my main instrument out there was really backgrounds and, and, and the flute. That's really where I really wanted to end up in right there. Now, what was the association with Everett Collins? Because he has some Isley connections, too, right? He was also came in with the Isleys as well. We When we started out, we even thought about possibly doing a, a, a surface before Bernard with Everett, you know, because also, you know, he was also a singer as well. And he was the drummer for Isley Brothers, but he also played keyboards for us. He didn't play drums for us. Gene Lake was our drummer, you know, and he's still my drummer now. That dude is still, oof, man, he's, he's the one. But anyway, uh, yeah, so, and, and we also lived, we kind of lived in the same area in, in Virginia. So that was later on. Because we started out living in New Jersey, and he was in Long Island. And when we would go on tour, I kept watching Everett going out to different places, real estate companies, and looking at houses and stuff. So I kept looking at him like, let me hang out with Everett for a minute, see what's going on with him. And he started looking at houses. So I started looking at houses. And eventually, I found a house in Virginia. And I told him about it. I said, look, this is new area that they're building. The house is a great man. You should come on buy, buy something down here. And so I bought it down. Uh, I bought a house down there in Williamsburg. And then I pretty much convinced him to buy a house down there as well. Of course, I was trying to get everybody down there, but he ended up buying a house. So we stayed, we was down there together. So we were still together like that. So of course, we're great friends. 
Did you have a lot of fun doing all those videos you guys got out? No. No. <laughs> I was never a video guy. Matter of fact, me and Dave, we almost like the same because the videos was mostly con concentrating on Bernard, you know, because he's the lead singer. And so we pretty much took a, a back seat and we was pretty much in the in the, the green room for hours. Wait, okay, when they gonna call us, when they gonna call us, when they gonna call us. So finally we get up and we got a got our little spot, we do our little thing, and then we're gone again, you know. And so that it, it never really did anything for me, you know. Plus, you know, I wasn't I was getting less and less visual at the time anyway, because my eyesight was really going bad. So it wasn't like I can enjoy even watching the videos. And at that same time period, videos were starting to move so fast that I couldn't really keep my eye on what was going on with all the intricacies that are happening on the videos. So I kind of took a step back on the videos and, and just enjoyed the fact that we can do them. That's really it for me. Yeah, kind of a necessary marketing tool. That was about. I it, had right? to be there. Yeah. I had to be there. You know, so I had to be there, and I was there. Everybody's like, "Man, won't you invite me to your video?" I'm like, "Huh? What? You know, like everybody else saw more into it than me." I'm like, "Yeah, whatever. You want to come? It's fine. Whatever. Come on." You know, David, do you remember like one show or two shows in particular that just really stand out from that period that just are unforgettable for whatever reason for you? there was one that was pretty much unforgettable. And we were on the road and we got a call, I guess from Al Heyman, I guess, that somebody had fell off of the tour that they were doing. And it was right in my hometown, which is a giant stadium up in New Jersey. And why is that important? Because it was one of the real big giant stadium shows. It was uh, Whispers, Karen, uh, Karen, Karen White, Patty LaBelle, Bobby Brown, um, uh, surface because we ended up on on that thing and it was really cool because we got a chance to sit down with patty because she was so cool right and then um and, and stephanie mills was on that thing too i believe and um so i got a chance to meet a lot of these folks right and then bobby brown was on there now i had wrote a song that um that originally was supposed to go to bobby brown right uh, bobby brown had did this big giant album he said man i was supposed to do that it was you on my everything I was supposed to do that song. I'm like, Bobby, get out of here, man. You sold eight million. We only sold one. Get out of here, man. You know. So we'd always had that little joke, you know, about him wanting to do the song. But I'm like, look, you already did your thing. I wish I was on that album, you know. Eight million, poof, that's a that's a big stretch. But I was never mad that we did the song, you know, because you know, Surface did a great job on that song. I love that song. Yeah, so that was one of the memorable memorable ones. shows. Yeah. You say it. Well, I just said that was one of the number ones, that song. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was number one, you know, it was number one record. The interesting thing about that particular record is that that was number one one week. This was one of my big times uh, doing a producer-writer. And the next week, Jermaine Jackson went number one with Don't Take It Personal. And then two weeks later, they flipped. Jermaine Jackson went number one, and you know, my, everything was number two. So that particular time period was was a, a, a nice period for success when it when it came to just me thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, Surface alone had three number ones in 1989. <laughs> I didn't count them, but yeah, we had "Show Me What You Love," "Close Enough Friends." Uh, what was the, what was the third one? You were my everything. You were my everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. That's right. You know, got us on. 
you guys had like the magic formula, if you will, for, you know, the ballad and also sort of that mid-tempo kind of shuffling yeah, groove, yeah, groove you know? Um, we fell there. That's where we kind of almost like fell. And Bernard was already there. So we kind of just leaned on each other musically and lyrically. So it just happened to be that way. Mm -hmm. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.